Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church, Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Good. Just curious, how many of you are going to be rooting for the Chiefs later today? Okay. How many of the Eagles? And how many forgot there was a Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I thought, yeah. I'll be watching the commercials, right? No, it's, no, it's great to be with you. Uh, welcome to those of you joining us online as well. Uh, like Michael said, I'll be continuing in a series today that we started a couple weeks ago called The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. We're going to, we've been going through and just begun to go through the book, the last book of the Bible known as Revelation. Probably one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, misused books of the Bible, but it's also one of the most intriguing and interesting and unique, and I believe one of the most important books of the Bible when we begin to understand how it's truly supposed to be interpreted. And, um, and Revelation is, is full of imagery. It's full of symbolism. And the author, John, who wrote this book, which is really a letter, actually, it's a, a letter to seven churches that he pastored, uh, that he, it was meant to be an encouragement to them. And in this letter, John shares a powerful encounter that he has with Jesus while well, he's in prison on the island of Patmos. And he's been put in prison for essentially refusing to worship the Roman Caesar Emperor Domitian, but for refusing to worship him as Lord and God. Respect Domitian, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that, that John did. Uh, pray for Domitian, definitely, definitely. But worship him as Lord and God, or as it was said in Greek, domine et deos, to call him Lord and, Lord and God, no, I'm not gonna do that. And John made a choice to not do that. And because of that, he was put on this prison island. Uh, and while he's there, he has this, this revelation, this encounter with God, uh, where he, he, essentially God puts on this, this five-act play, if you want to think of it like that, a five-act play for John to encourage him. And last week, Heather, if you were here, she talked about the end of act one, where Jesus was essentially standing in the middle of these seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches in Asia Minor that he, he pastored, and he had a message for each one of them. And today, we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5. And in these two chapters, it's really the beginning of, of Act 2, in a sense, uh, of this big play that God is, is putting on. And we're going to see Jesus again in Act 2, but he's going to look very different than he did in Act 1. He's going to have quite a costume change, if you want to think of it that way. And before we dive into looking at these chapters, I want to remind us of two main truths or purposes when we look at an apocalypse or we look at apocalyptic literature, specifically Revelation. And we talked about these really from, from week one. The first purpose of this book is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. To set this present moment that we're living in right now in light of what we can't see in the realities of the future. Meaning to remind us that in our future, despite the challenges that we may experience today, that in our future, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back and he's going to make everything all new. And that's important for us to remember and to hold on to. And the second purpose is very similar. It's to set this present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present 
of the present, that right now, that right now, what we can't see with our human natural eyes is that even with all the challenges going on in the world, that God is very much in control and he is very much active right now, even if he doesn't initially appear to be. And this is the, the second purpose is what we're going to primarily focus on today and look at in these passages. So let me start by praying and just inviting God's just presence with us and being aware of that. So, so Lord and God, domine et deos. Hmm. As we look at these two chapters in Revelation 4 or 5, pray that, Lord, that you would just help us to, re- to set this moment in light of the unseen realities of the present, Lord. I pray that you would give us an apocalypse, an, an opening of our eyes to what you want us to see in these chapters and, and in our own lives. Yeah, pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, Revelation 4-5 is essentially the second act of this play being performed for John on Patmos. And, and the way we know it's the second act or the beginning of a new act is this keyword open, open. Every time John wants us to know a new act is starting, he uses this word open. Uh, Revelation 4.1 says this, after this, I, John, looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now it's interesting, the door isn't opening, it's standing open. It's staying open, implying it's going to stay open. The door that John is, is invited to walk into or sees, standing open, he's gonna, he's gonna walk into the throne room of God and, and, and see God himself. And, and John is invited to come in. He's invited to come in to the throne room and we are invited to come in. And, and I want to read the whole chapter to us so that we can kind of get the overall big picture of what's happening. And then we'll kind of go through bit by bit and pull some key things out. But Revelation 4, 1, 11 says this. Again, after I looked, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of these four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. Now we'll stop there. Now let's just be honest and say, this is a weird scene, right? This is an unusual picture, right? But let's unpack it a bit. What, what does John see? What does John see? Well, first he sees a throne, right? He sees a throne. He sees a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And this one seems to, to shine, shine with the appearance of jewels, of, of rubies and jasper, right? This is John's way of trying his, as best as he can to use natural things that he knows of to describing this supernatural radiant being in front of him. And he says that he sees a rainbow encircling the throne like an emerald. There's a rainbow there, referencing back to the Old Testament story of Noah, if you're familiar with that story. When God used the symbol of a rainbow as a sign of both his justice and mercy, right? God who brought justice on the earth by bringing a flood and wiping out all those who were choosing and committed to evil, but he also showed mercy. He showed mercy to Noah and his family and future mercy and promising to never flood the earth again. So the rainbow has always been a symbol, a symbol of God's sovereignty over his creation, a sign of his rule and his reign. And and we'll talk more about that, that rainbow and the significance of that a little bit later. But we also see in verse five that there are flashes of lightning, right? Rumbling thunder, right? We see that coming from the throne, There are seven lamps blazing in front of the throne. And this is one of the times that John specifically says, let me tell you what those seven lamps represent. And he says, they represent the seven spirits of God. And you might hear that and think, well, wait a minute, that that can't be right. Since when does God made up of seven different spirits, right? That, 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 that can't be accurate. Well, this, this brings up a really important guideline that I, I want to you know, just encourage us all to remember and hold on to while we're looking at Revelation. And in apocalyptic literature like Revelation, whenever we see numbers, we should, we should, think, we should recognize that numbers are symbols, not statistics, okay? In, in apocalyptic literature, numbers are always symbols, not statistics. And, and here's, what I, here's what I mean by that. The number seven in this case, in the Bible, represents completeness, completeness. There were seven churches and seven lampstands in the previous chapters we read, talking about the, the, the complete church, the overall church, right? There were six days of creation, but on the seventh day, God rested, right? There are seven days in a week. So what, what John is saying here is not necessarily that there are seven different spirits of God. He's actually, another way to put it is the sevenfold spirit of God or the complete spirit of God. What he's saying is the complete Holy Spirit is right here as well. Now, I'm not exactly sure how John ever took his eyes off of God sitting on the throne, but he eventually he noticed that there were 24 other thrones with 24 other elders around him, and they're all wearing white and wearing golden crowns. And, and 24 is interesting because, and I don't believe this is coincidental, um, 24 is also the number traditionally of bodyguards that the Roman emperors had around them at all times. 24, 24 bodyguards. Kings had 12, governors had 12, but emperors had 24. I don't think that's coincidence at all. 
It was very possible that right then and there, the emperor, Roman emperor Domitian was probably sitting on his throne with his 24 bodyguards around him. And God is making this comparison in this play. He's showing that he is the true emperor of the universe. Also, again, remember, numbers are symbols, not statistics in, the, in this book. And so 24 is 12 plus 12, 12 plus 12. And some scholars have, have pointed out that there were 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes in Israel representing God's people before Jesus. Right? But then there are also 12 disciples representing God's, the beginning of the church and God's new Israel that came with and after Jesus. And so you have the Old Testament plus the New Testament together. You have the temple plus the church together. You have the Jew plus the Gentile together. You have everyone who's put their faith in God represented in this group around the throne in the 24 elders. It's, this, is a, this is powerful, powerful imagery here. And if the scene isn't weird enough, it gets a whole lot weirder right after that, right? Right? It says, the next thing John sees are four living creatures covered in eyes. And these, these creatures aren't like anything you or I have ever seen before. It says one is like a lion. It's not a lion, it's like a lion. One is like an ox, one is like a man, and one is like an eagle. And we don't know exactly for certain what these represent, but Daryl Johnson, who we've referenced throughout this um, series so far a lot, he suggests that together they could symbolize all of creation. Again, because numbers are symbols and not statistics. Four, there's four of them. Four is the biblical number for creation. Four corners of the earth, four winds, four directions, north, south, east, and west. And one rabbi taught this, that the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among the wild animals is the lion. And the mightiest among them all is man. And God has taken all of these and secured them to his throne. So they represent the strongest, most powerful of all the living creatures. And then they're covered in eyes. Right? Covered in eyes, which again is weird. But eyes are a symbol of wisdom. They're a symbol of wisdom. Like, you know, having eyes to, to see into a situation means you have wisdom about a situation, right? So to, be, to have lots of eyes would be, is a symbol for having great wisdom. So here God has surrounded the throne with, with these four living creatures representing the strongest and the wisest of creation right here at the throne. And what are they doing? What are they doing? Are they threatening God? Are they challenging God? No, no, they're worshiping him. They're worshiping him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The four living creatures with these 24 elders, again, representing all who put their faith in God, they're falling down before him and they're worshiping. Uh, 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God. Domine e Deus. You are worthy. You are worthy. This word worthy is not really actually a religious word. It's actually more of a political word. Uh, the word worthy is what the citizens would shout when the emperor would come and visit their city in the streets. The word worthy is what the Roman senators would shout when the emperor came into the great hall. This whole scene and setting up this whole scene was meant to encourage John, 
who the one who, who was truly worthy was, was not Domitian. You know, it was God. He's the true emperor. John had to make a choice. Was he going to worship Domitian or was he going to worship God? And he made a choice to worship God and God is trying to encourage him, you've made the right choice. And I am in control. But if that's not enough, this is all just setting up the scene for what is about to happen next, right? Where we're going to meet the surprising hero of the whole story in chapter five. In Revelation 5, we meet Jesus again. And in, and in Act 1, Jesus was white-haired and eyes blazing with fire. He was dressed in a white robe with a golden sash, like, a, like this glorious high priest. But his costume is going to look very, very different in these next few verses here. In Revelation 5, 1 through 4, it says this, Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy, there's that word again, worthy, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I, John, wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So God is sitting on the throne. He's holding on to this, this scroll that, that no one can seem to open. And it's sealed again with seven seals. Again, it's a symbolic, not statistic. It's meaning it's completely sealed up. It's completely sealed up. And, and this scroll represents God's complete plan his complete plan to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's his redemptive plan to save the world and everyone in it. It's it's the way he's going to unveil his, his, his whole story. But who is worthy to open it? It says no one. No one is worthy enough to reveal this redemptive plan and enact this redemptive plan of God and save the world. No one, you know, in heaven or on earth or under the earth And so it's at this that John begins to sob, basically. He begins to cry uncontrollably. He's crying, weeping and weeping uh, as a representative of humanity, as a representative of the whole world. Who will come and be able to open the scroll and save it and save us? But then in verse five, one of the elders speaks up to encourage John. He says this, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see See, look, open your eyes. Have an apocalypse, is what he's saying. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed, has won. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is great news. Great news, right? Great news. There is in fact one who can open the scroll. There is somebody and it's this lion the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. These are, these are references back to Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11, respectively. And they are references to the Messiah. They are rep- references to the Christ. They are references to the, to the chosen one, to Jesus. And so, and so John is thinking, oh, good. There's a lion coming. There's a ferocious, roaring, strong, fierce lion who's strong enough to come and open this scroll and start all of this. But then what John sees is completely unexpected. It's not at all what he thought he would see. In verse six, it says this, and then I saw a lamb, a lamb, 
looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Instead of seeing a lion, John sees a lamb, a little lamb. Well, that can't be right, right? That can't be right. Where's the lion? Nope, in its place is this lamb. Now, there are two Greek words translated lamb that are found in the New Testament. The one that's the usual word, the more common word is the word amnos, and it refers to an adult sheep. And it's actually the word that John the Baptist, a different John than this John, John was a pretty common name back then, just like it is today. But it was the word that John the Baptist used, if you know the story, where he sees Jesus walking along and he says, look, behold, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's actually this word that, that um, John the Baptist uses. But that's not the word that this different John, John the disciple uses here. He uses another word for lamb and it's arneon. And it means little lamb or baby lamb, like Mary's little lamb. Think that when you see this word. And how is this lamb described? It says, with seven horns and seven eyes. This is a weird looking lamb. Let's just be honest, right? This is odd. But again, these are symbols, not literal. These are meant to be symbols. Seven meaning complete, right? Eyes meaning wisdom, So this lamb has complete wisdom and knowledge and knows exactly what it's doing. And horns, horns in the Bible are symbols of strength and power. So by having seven of them, it's saying this little baby lamb has complete strength and complete power, complete wisdom, complete knowledge. But it looks like it has been slain. Slaughtered is probably a better translation sacrificed. It has been, it's covered in its own blood and yet it's not dead anymore, right? It's coming up to the throne to take the scroll. It was dead, but now it's alive. And where is this little lamb standing? It says, verse six, it's standing at the center of the throne. Heather talked about this a little bit last week in act one. Where was Jesus standing then? Jesus was standing in the center of the seven lampstands, in the center of the seven churches. And where is Jesus now? The lamb standing. He's standing at the center of the throne. Who else is there? Well, God the Father is there. And remember, the Holy Spirit is there, the sevenfold spirit. So here, actually in this passage, we have a representation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit the Trinitarian God all represented in one place at the center of the throne. This sacrificial lamb is at the center of heaven. And this is the greatest twist of all of history, the greatest redemption story. The lion is able to open the scroll, not as a lion, but by becoming like a little lamb and sacrificing himself. And how does does everything and everyone respond in this scene? How did they respond? In joyous celebration. Joyous celebration breaks out for the rest of chapter five. There are three different groups 
that worship the lamb. The first is these 24 elders, these four living creatures in verse nine of chapter five and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. They begin by worshiping the lamb and singing, you are worthy, you are worthy. And the second group is a group of angels. Thousands and thousands of angels begin to sing a new song in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, what's interesting is this phrase, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, these are the exact words that the senators would say to Caesar Domitian when he would come into the Senate chambers. It's the exact phrase. And here the angels are declaring who the true emperor is, the sacrificed lamb. And finally, the third group is all the rest of creation. Revelation uh, uh, 5, 13, it says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. I would argue that this is the pivotal scene of all of the book of Revelation. I would argue actually that this reenactment is the most important event of all of history. This is where everything pivots, right? This story. So what does this, what does this mean for us, right? What does this mean? What implications does this have for our lives? Because Jesus's act of sacrificial love of becoming like the slain lamb and dying on the cross for us, what does this mean? Well, it means a couple things. One, it means that we are able to approach the throne of the Lamb of God. We're able to approach the throne of the Lamb of God. The door was open to heaven. John was invited to come through it. He was invited to be a witness, to be a witness of it all and to be in the living, mighty presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because of what the Lamb had done, we too can boldly come into the presence of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it almost word for word like this. He says this in 4.16. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every day, every single day, no matter what is going on in our lives, we can come before God with our fears, with our worries, with our pains, with our sins, and we can come with confidence. We can come with confidence that he will be merciful and gracious to us because of the slain lamb, because of what he has done. And not only that, he wants us to come. He wants us to come. He is inviting us to come. And when we decline that invitation, when, when, when we, whether it's out of shame or out of guilt or out of pride or out of, I, I don't need that, I can do this on my own, whatever it is, when we decline that invitation, we are missing out on experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. Don't miss out. He doesn't want us to ever miss out on experiencing his presence and knowing that we can come to him no matter what is going on in our lives. We can come to him. That's the, that's the first implication. The second implication is that we are able to worship the one who is truly in control. 
And this is so important to remember. You know, what, what John sees is not some future event that will someday happen when God performs some mighty act and dethrones Emperor Domitian. That is not what's happened here. What, God, what John sees was actually happening right then and there before his very eyes, right? What John sees is an apocalypse, right? An opening of the heavenly dimension right in front of him. And what God wants John to see and to know is that while all seems lost in his world, John is on this island and he's getting older and he probably will never get off of it and, you know, before he dies. And while he, he might feel there's a sense of discouragement or where are you at, God? God wants John to know that while all seems lost, he is in fact strong and radiant and lightning and immovable and sitting on the throne right now completely in total control and in charge. Ultimately, Domitian is not in control. God is. He is greater. And when, when our lives seem out of control, when there are spy balloons going overhead, right? when there are 28,000 people dying in earthquakes, probably many more still to be found, when personally you are struggling and, and, and things that like just the cards seem stacked against you and you feel imprisoned or you feel trapped or you feel isolated or alone like on an island, you need to remind yourself. You need to know. You need to know that in actuality, God is on the throne and he is in total control right now. Right now. I'll finish up with this story. Back in December, just a, just a few weeks ago, I had a week that felt very out of control, very difficult few days. And in the matter of two days, I visited a member of this church, a friend in this church who um, had just been told that hospice was being called in and that he only had a few days left to live. And in between visiting him, I did two funerals and back-to-back days, one for a seventh-month-old baby boy. It was a hard couple of days, to say the least. It was a hard couple of days. And I was, I was having one of those, those weeks where it was kind of like, God, this, this doesn't feel like you're in control, if I'm being honest. And I was getting ready. Actually, I was getting my suit on. I was at home getting my suit on and I was getting ready to come do the second of the two funerals. And I was just in my bedroom and I was just talking to God. Actually, in a sense, I was boldly going before his throne. And saying, God, I, I don't know where you're at here in the last couple of days. This seems like you, this, if I'm just being honest, this seems like out of control. And this is feeling really discouraging and hopeless and depressing. Where are you at? And my wife, Sarah, had to take our daughter, Ava, somewhere. And so they, they had left and they were driving down the driveway. And this is why I'm, I'm still in my room getting ready. And they're driving down the driveway and a storm had just rolled through. And she looked in the back rear view mirror and she saw this over our house. We want to throw up that picture. So that's our house. And not only that, that's our bedroom. Like our bedroom is right behind our garage right there. And she sent me this picture right then and there. And I had actually read Revelation 4, 5 that day. And it was like I had this apocalypse. It was like my eyes were open. And it was like God was giving me his answer right then and there. 
And he was saying, hey, you can't see this because I couldn't see it in the house. I couldn't see it in the house from my perspective. It didn't seem, I couldn't see the rainbow, but, but, he could, but, but, but from Sarah's perspective, she could see it. She sent me this and it was like, I knew right then it was God's way of saying he was in control. Do you remember in the beginning of chapter four, we read that there was a rainbow encircling the throne of God. His promise of his sovereignty and his reign and his rule and his mercy And not only that, a few minutes later, we get this next picture from our neighbor who shows this. The rainbow is over their house, over their bedroom. And what what I find about, it's really cool about that is, is this truth and this reality that God is right with all of us all the time. I'm not anybody special. He is with you each and every day, all the time. He is sitting on the throne right right in front of you, even though you can't see it. And so this is so important that we remember this. This is so important that we remember this. And, and, and what can we take away, I think, from Revelation 4, 5? It's this, it's, it's that each day, each day, no matter what it holds, let us boldly approach the sacrificial lamb. Let us boldly approach Jesus with our needs, asking for his grace and his mercy. And let us never stop worshiping the one who is truly worthy and truly in control, even when initially it might not seem like it. Amen? Amen. I wanna invite up the worship team and why don't the rest of us stand? As part of our worship, we're gonna take communion together as, as as a church family. And so if you didn't get a chance to grab the, 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 the bread and the juice, the cracker and the juice, when you came in or up here on the front or in the back, you can feel free to step out and grab that right now, whichever is more convenient. And you know, as we, we talk about this, this play, this play that was being put on for John to witness, as we talk about this, this play of this little lamb being able to take the scroll that this little lamb that was slain, we need to remind ourselves that this wasn't the first time John was seeing this happen. In fact, John was there when it actually happened. He was there when Jesus died on the cross. He was one of his good friends. And on the night before uh, this all happened, Jesus told them this was gonna happen and he was sitting there having a meal with them. And his friend Matthew recalls it this way says this, Matthew 6, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. So let's eat the bread together. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being the sacrificial little lamb. You are the one who is worthy of our worship. You who sits on the throne, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Well, 
Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.